My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Drew Oya J. Over the last few decades, non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, have come to hold a pretty central place in many of our efforts to respond to important social issues. From international issues to the environment, from poverty to violence against women, a huge proportion of the work that attempts to respond to these massive problems comes from NGOs. Some meet needs directly, some do research or public education or advocacy or policy development, some do a mix of all of these things. Sounds good, right? Today's guest argues that maybe that isn't such a good thing. Jay recently published a piece of writing, building on his many years of organizing as well as past writing, arguing that for all of the good work that people in NGOs do, the predominance of NGOs and how we respond to these incredibly crucial issues has ended up effectively depoliticizing much activism in Canada and drastically limiting our ability to build or even to imagine the kinds of movements and organizations that might actually be able to get at the roots of these problems. For all of the breadth of their activities and diversity of their organizational cultures, Jay points out that what NGOs have in common is that they depend on governments or on foundations for funding, and that severely limits the kinds of questions they can raise and the kinds of actions they can take, and exerts profound pressures against building efforts for change that are democratic, participatory, and focused on mobilizing ordinary people. Jay talks about his own experiences as an organizer as well as research he has done as a writer, about the ways in which NGOs limit and co-opt our attempts to create social change, and about how we might, without falling into unhelpful moralism and defensiveness respectively, start addressing this crucial barrier to creating the movements that we and the planet so urgently need. I spoke with Jay by Skype to phone from Montreal. My name's Drew Oyajay. I'm a, an organizer and writer, and I live in Montreal. I've done a lot of work on climate justice, and in the past, Indigenous Solidarity work. And I co-authored a book called Page with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism with Nick Barry Shaw. In terms of NGOs, yeah, I mean, I think that NGOization is a major theme in the last, depending on how you count, 20 to 40 years of organizing in Canada. And I basically see that as a sort of a professionalization of activism a reliance on centralized paid staff structures that may have at one point been accountable to a membership of some kind or a base of supporters, but increasingly become accountable to funders who end up being either government agencies like the Canadian International Development Agency, which has now been rolled into the Foreign Affairs Department, or foundation funders. These are usually run by extremely wealthy individuals or families. Examples would be like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Ivy Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, stuff like that. So especially in the area of environmental activism, they've been funneling huge amounts of money, uh, millions of dollars, into Canadian organizations. And those organizations, I would say most organizations have become sort of grant dependent. So you have a situation where there's increasingly a culture of understanding that we need to get funding 
in order to perpetuate our organization, and that's the first priority. And then any other sort of priority that we have in terms of protecting the environment or achieving social justice comes second to that, which creates, I think, real long-term problems for movement building. In terms of your own experiences as an organizer, for example, is this something that you have run into and been frustrated by? Yeah, definitely. There are a few different examples. I think the one that really changed my perspective and changed a lot of people in Montreal's perspective on this was watching the coup d'etat unfold in Haiti in 2004. So just a thumbnail sketch. You had a democratically elected government led by President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And what it had done is mildly defied the IMF and the international consensus about what should happen in Haiti. You know, they wanted Haiti to open up to free trade, privatize any kind of state-owned companies, and basically be a pool of cheap labor in the Western Hemisphere. And the government said, we're going to do a lot of that, but we're not going to do all of it. We're going to actually do some things that are in interest for people as well. So that was intolerable. And Canada, the U.S., and France overthrew the democratically elected government and installed another government which proceeded to undertake a reign of terror, killing thousands of people, shooting up poor neighborhoods that were the center of protest against that regime, and really just made a hash of things. So what was interesting about this in terms of NGOs is that at that point, the vast majority of development NGOs in Canada have a goal, a stated goal, I think, of reducing poverty, of eliminating poverty, of the welfare of all human beings around the world. That's generally their overall goal but then they've been subsumed into the sort of structure of government funding. About a billion dollars, I think, at that point was being put into development NGOs specifically. But we didn't know any of that. So we were really surprised when, you know, we started a Haiti Solidarity Group. A number of Haiti Solidarity Groups popped up across the country, and we were trying to work in solidarity with people in Haiti who were being attacked and who were under assault because of this coup d'etat that Canada had sponsored. And what we found really quickly was that NGOs weren't interested in talking about it. And if they were, they were on the wrong side. And so the most striking example of that was probably Alternatives in Montreal. They're made up of four different movement organizations that formed an NGO in the 70s. And they were actually supporting the coup. They were calling for actually more violence against what they were calling the bandits in Haiti, who were actually protesters and political activists, a lot of them. So there was a criminalization of dissent. that was kind of shocking. So that was probably the most dramatic example that I've seen. I think before that, I would have seen NGOs as a benign force. They you know, didn't have the same politics as me. They were a little more moderate. But overall, we have to work together and we have to build alliances where we can. And everyone has different perspective and so on. But I think that a really important step was understanding that the amount of funding and the amount of structural pressures on these organizations actually really do shape the whole face of movement building in Canada and our major impediment to moving it forward because you have so much volunteer energy that gets funneled into these groups that have a huge amount of resources. And so that's a major challenge, I think, for movements that don't have those resources to be able to say, okay, how are we going to build structures that actually stay outside of that system of funding, but also build up capacity to actually be able to ask for what we actually want to ask for, not just for what the government will allow us to ask for. In the article that inspired this interview, you lay out a template through which NGOization happens. So why don't you, first of all, explain to the listeners what an NGO is, and then talk about that process of NGOization. It just literally means non-governmental organization. It's basically anything that's not a for-profit corporation or a government. 
But that said, I think NGO has come to have a much more specific kind of terminology. So the way I define it is a mission-driven organization that's largely dependent on grants, whether from foundations or government agencies. In terms of the process of NGOization, the category a few people have started using is popular organizations. And what distinguishes popular organizations, I think, is that they're membership-based and membership-funded, but also membership-driven in their process. So there's actually a democratic process where members can bring forward different motions and change the priorities of the organization. We don't have very many examples. I think unions could be somewhat considered popular organizations, although they don't really act like it in a lot of cases. The Council of Canadians would be one example. Probably the only big organization that might be called an NGO that we could also call a popular organization because members do have the ability to bring for different priorities and get those established. So the process of NGOization is the process of both popular organizations becoming less popular in the sense of becoming less democratic, more staff-driven, more grant-dependent. And it's also the process of just creating whole new organizations that aren't accountable to anybody from the very beginning except for their funders. So the process of NGOization, one example would be like the BC Sierra Club. In the environmental heyday of the 70s, it was a hugely popular organization. And all through the 80s, it had a lot of popular support. They would regularly fill out auditoriums all over BC, having meetings about all kinds of different environmental issues. And they only had like one or two staff, but they had a huge amount of volunteer power. And they were able to influence things quite a bit. In the early 90s, foundations came in and started offering groups like the Sierra Club. There's all kinds of different grassroots environmental groups in BC. They started offering them big grants. This is generally the way the NGOization of movement groups happens, is that you start out getting a bunch of money, usually not really any strings attached. Funders are just like, oh, yeah, you're, it's great. What you're doing is great. Keep doing it. But then the problem is that there's a switch that happens. When you have all this money, you start to do things like pay people comfortable salaries and give them offices and pay out benefits and fly them around to different places. And the social milieu that they operate in starts to change. Instead of going to meetings in you know, church basements and community centers, you start to go to meetings in boardrooms and flying around to meet with other NGOs that are well-funded. And there starts to be this rift that develops. And then all of a sudden you realize that you've built up this huge infrastructure that's then dependent on that funding that you're getting, those millions of dollars that are coming in or those hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever it is. And so you can't stop. And at that point, the foundation or the government agency that's funding you has a huge amount of power. And so they start to use it. I don't think we have to establish which part is intentional or not. I think there's a case to be made that there is an intentional overall strategy of co-optation. But I think that regardless what's going to happen when you have NGOs taking this money, it creates a power dynamic of dependency. And so the funders' priorities, I think, naturally just get increasingly absorbed into the organization. So whereas you might have had political diversity about what the overall vision of things is, you end up um, I mean, I think the question of capitalism is a really key one. You're not going to find any NGOs that are going to question capitalism that are dependent on government or foundation funding. And I don't think that would have always been the case when they weren't dependent. The next step in that process is that your membership becomes a liability. You end up with a situation where, to the extent that you're democratic and take direction from your membership, that actually just creates a tension in your organization because you're still having to get all these grants. And when foundations put out calls for grants, they're generally looking to do specific things. They have their priority areas that they list, and then different NGOs compete for that money based on their ability to meet those priority areas. And so you create an organic structure where no one really realizes that there's actually somebody in control, that there's actually somebody that's steering the whole of the work in a particular direction, but they are. And it's insidious, I think, because foundations will generally, you know, like I think tar sands activism is a really great example. A lot of people started to do a lot of work around tar sands stuff, and then foundations moved in and started funding that work. 
So it looks like at that point that it's driven by the environmental NGOs and the grassroots groups that are working on that stuff. But then the more the funding gets in there, the more they start to steer things toward the priorities of the funders and the more the funders have the ability to shape the future direction of that. And there's not a lot of acknowledgement of that because it's, well, it's just not part of the culture, but it's also directly against the interests of the people seeking those grants to, to criticize the funders or to call it really attention to them in any way. You've talked about two major sectors where NGOization has happened, the development sector and environmental work. Are there other areas where NGOization has played a major role in the Canadian context? In terms of movement organizations, those are definitely the two big areas, you know, because development focuses on international solidarity. And I think that's where a lot of activism was going in the 60s. And so a huge amount of money was co-opting that so I would say that development NGOs and environmental NGOs are the main categories that I've seen in terms of the co-optation of movement structures, but certainly NGOization is dominant in other areas as well. I think community organizations that do healthcare provision, anti-poverty work of various kinds, certainly the work around poverty is dominated by NGOs at this point and far more depoliticized even than development NGOs. So that's an area where you've taken something that's extremely political, which is poverty and wealth inequality, and turned it into something that's totally apolitical, at least theoretically, or at least status quo driven in the sense that you have all these NGOs or nonprofit organizations that do the service provision, whether it's providing food for the homeless or food banks and all this stuff that alleviates immediate symptoms, but does very little to look at the overall system that creates that poverty in the first place. Yeah, I'd say those are the main areas. Anything that actually is affected by inequality and power structures, you're going to find the charity model being applied. You're going to find a lot of funding available to do work that doesn't look at the fundamental structures in society and that doesn't mobilize people, that doesn't empower people to do their own thing, that focuses instead on depoliticized, staff-driven structures that are nominally making some kind of difference, but that will never be able to fundamentally change the root causes of societal problems, whether it's poverty or violence against women or environmental degradation or the effects of Canada's imperial policies abroad. The argument that you make in the article is not only are there these specific areas where movements have been co-opted or blunted or otherwise changed, but also that because of this, there's been an overall change in the political culture in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Tell me more about that overall change. Yeah, I mean, I was born in 1980, so all the stuff I get about the 60s is talking to people and reading history books and stuff, so take it with a grain of salt. But my understanding is that there were movement organizations that were really powerful, whether it was you know radical collectives or radical political parties or parts of unions that were really active, and that there was a sort of a culture of mobilization. We can't say that NGOization is the only reason that movements have declined in their effectiveness. But I think that we can identify it as a major theme in terms of what's holding us back, in terms of winning some of the kinds of large-scale societal gains that we won in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You had major changes going on in establishing the welfare state. And I think that had to do with the fact that there was a constant undercurrent of class conflict and a questioning of whether market-based economies driven by an owner class were really the way to go in terms of how society should be set up. There's a real questioning of that. And I think NGOs lead to not a questioning of that. But then in addition to that, they lead to a disempowerment on a large scale. 
because instead of saying we've identified a problem, we have thousands of people, we're going to find a way to address it by empowering ourselves to act together. Instead, you have a situation where there's an organization with maybe a handful or a few dozen staff members who are going to do all that work for us and maybe ask us to like show up to a demonstration or click on a petition, but those thousands of people aren't part of the actual planning process. They're putting their power, as little as it is, in the hands of NGOs and the hands of these organizations that are supposed to take care of it for us. So you see this culture that's infected everything. I think we expect organizations to do more of the work for us on the membership end, and staff expect to carry more of the load in terms of setting things up so you have a polarization of apathy. You know, probably has to do with people being overworked and not having as much free time, but it also has to do with this NGO model where I think you end up with a feedback loop where people try to participate and there's no actual really way to meaningfully participate other than to do what the staff-driven organizations say is the priority. And the priority, of course, comes from funders. And so they experience that over and over again, that they actually don't get to meaningfully participate and then they disengage a little more. And so when that happens over and over and over again, thousands or millions of times really over decades, then you end up with less participation as a society, a more fractured society that's more individualized and specifically in terms of our activism. And with NGO workers that are more and more focused on really specific short-term gains. And just to sort of flip the script, a big part of where I was coming from with the NGOization piece that I wrote was experiencing firsthand the student strike in 2012 in Quebec. It's really eye-opening in terms of seeing what can happen when hundreds of thousands of people empower themselves and take the decisions and assume the consequences. It wasn't without consequences. People were willing to put a whole year of their education, of their lives really, on hold in order to win a gain for future generations. That's just not something you see anywhere else. And I think that happened because of the democratic processes that are in place and also because of the structure of the campaigning. I think whereas NGOs tend to say, okay, before we can do anything else, we need to make this little tiny gain here. So we're just going to focus on this little target because that's achievable. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what ASSE showed us, what the student movement in Quebec showed us, was that it's much more potentially transformative when you say, okay, we have all these unachievable goals. You know, we don't like capitalism, but ending capitalism is unachievable, but we're still talking about it. So within that, we want at least some level of social democracy, some control over our institutions and some collective empowerment. You know, that overall is not achievable right now, you know, in the next year. So within that, we're asking for free education. We understand that free education is also quite an ambitious goal, but it's one that's going to form the backdrop of everything we do. But that's not achievable in the next year, necessarily. We're still going to ask for it. So we'll scale back even further and say, okay, we're just going to fight these tuition hikes that are happening right now. But with the backdrop of all those other things, right, free education was a constant refrain that was talked about. And when was the last time you heard NGOs really advance a vision of society that's positive like that? that is, on the one hand, unachievable, but on the other hand, widely desirable, and to start to stoke the visions that people have about how society could be different. I mean, there's all kinds of things to disagree with with how ASSE conducted itself, but it was undeniably successful in getting hundreds of thousands of people into the streets and mobilized of their own accord and harnessing all their creativity. I mean, thousands and thousands of students were spending their days figuring out new ways to help the movement and expressing themselves in all kinds of different ways. And feeling empowered to do so, whereas with NGOs, I think, let's say Greenpeace was trying to do the same thing. You end up with like a very stage-managed sort of action that everybody participates in, then everybody goes home. Greenpeace manages all the press and stuff. 
it's a lot more neat and tidy. And you know, you don't end up with as many rough edges. But you also, I think, end up negating the possibility of that sort of large-scale mobilization and collective empowerment. So in your experience in writing and talking publicly about these issues, what kinds of conversations do you get into? What kind of objections do you run into? It's really hard to get to the meat of those. It's a rare opportunity that you actually get to engage with someone about this because people don't want to talk about it generally. I think for the most part, it's pretty underground. Certainly one of the main objections that we get is that we're making too big a generalization. But NGOs, they're all different. They're all unique. You can't really generalize about them. And I understand where they're coming from because it's true. Every NGO is unique. They all have different cultures, but I think they have a lot in common as well. And so that's what we're trying to focus on. I used the cheeky line in that piece that said, every NGO is a snowflake, but the overall effect is chilling. And I think that's what we're trying to get at. It's like, what's the overall effect here? And what NGOs do have in common is that they're all dependent on funders. Some of those funders might be a little better than others, but that dynamic is universal. There are only a few member-funded organizations that don't rely on foundations in Canada. The only big one I can really name is the Council of Canadians. I think Greenpeace has quite a bit of member funding that's individual donor funding. So they theoretically could be a lot more democratic or they could be democratic at all in their operations, but they choose not to. They've chosen a professionalized, very NGO-based model to go with. And the inevitable question when faced with the kind of analysis you've laid out here is, okay, so what do we do? So what's your answer to that question? I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is just raise consciousness. I think part of the reason it's so hard to have these discussions with people about NGOs is because it implies sort of a moral judgment. There's a sort of, a, oh, you work for an NGO, and so you're sold out or you're not really part of the movement. And I think we need to move away from that individual defensiveness. It's really difficult. I mean, the response to this latest article, was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty amazing, I guess is all I'll say about that. But it was very much in that paradigm of people feeling judged and not seen and like they were doing work that wasn't being acknowledged. So I think we really have to tread a line when we talk about these things to really acknowledge the work that people are doing at the same time as we identify that there are institutional problems that we're facing here that are large-scale structural issues that we're going to have to overcome if we're going to move forward. I could put it this way. NGOs are the technology that has been extremely effective in co-opting movements and keeping them in a box for the last 50 years. So I think if movements are going to get out of the box and start to focus on the bigger picture questions, which are at this point a matter of survival with climate change and the level of environmental devastation that's happening, we're going to have to get outside of that box. So, yeah, how do we do that? I mean, I think we have to start to put energy into building popular organizations. I think we can't expect them to be funded by funders. I think we have to become the funders. We have to start raising our expectations of ourselves in terms of the level of commitment that people are expected to put in. I think it's not unreasonable to start to talk about, at least, if people don't have extenuating circumstances and make a decent income, we should start to talk about giving 10% of your money to a movement organization. Of course, that means that we need to have movement organizations. So how do we have those? How do we build those? How do we create something that people have enough confidence in to devote that level of resources to? Good question. I think there are experiments that are happening. I'm certainly not the only one who's identified that the left needs radical institutions that are more durable than a five-person collective and more democratic than a union or an NGO. And so people are doing it. Solidarity Halifax is one interesting example. 
To learn more about Solidarity Halifax, I encourage you to go to rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca and search for the episode of Talking Radical Radio from about a year ago done with a member of that organization. Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly, another sort of experiment that's happening in the social forum process. The social forum process that Jay refers to uh, is the process that's building towards the People's Social Forum that's happening in Ottawa in late August of this year. It's a process uh, of consultations and collaborations that's bringing people from different organizations and movements and communities and struggle together, uh, both locally and ultimately on a national basis in Ottawa, to discuss issues, to share ideas, to share struggles, and so on. I mean, it has all kinds of NGOs that are in there, but it also has a pretty interesting democratic process that's happening. You know, in different cities, they have assemblies and stuff that are meeting to talk about, um, to organize different aspects of the forum. I mean, I think we always have to be on guard about the co-optation, especially when we're working with NGOs. They have ways of asserting their priorities at unexpected and inconvenient moments. But at the same time, I think all those things are at least creating the possibility of advancing a a different kind of cultural norm, one of collective empowerment, one of democracy, one of rejecting funder control. And I think that's the other thing we have to do is we have to start to face down the funders directly. No more of this tiptoeing around the question of what influence these funders are having. I think we need to identify what the funders are doing, what the priorities are, and we need to achieve a level of transparency about that work through the conflict that might arise because people have different ideas about how to deal with that, and then find a strategy for mitigating that influence and bringing it back under democratic movement control. So those are huge tasks. Any one of those you could spend a lifetime on, but we have to do it all in the next five to 10 years. So uh, I hope people are up for it. We need to build up our confidence. We need to build up our belief in our own abilities to achieve something. Because if we don't believe we can achieve you know, climate justice, or if we don't believe that we can achieve a radical redistribution of wealth and collective empowerment in a fundamentally different economy that's based on human values, then it becomes about ego. And so I think in terms of moving forward and building up our confidence and really supporting each other and pushing each other to think big and to broaden our horizons in terms of the goals we take on is going to be the fundamental task. It's a lifelong process, but I think with supportive and committed communities and a real self-awareness about what our capacities are, I think that we'd be much better off with everybody taking on just a few tasks and doing them well and passionately and with support than trying to push ourselves to solve all the problems at once. That's a lot of things to balance, but that's the only solution I can come up with. Um, I should add that having organizations that can hold that kind of activity that can say, okay, now we're going to mobilize potentially hundreds of thousands of people for free education and and to see that as a possibility and to see what all the steps are to get there, obviously is just fundamentally important to that. You have been listening to my interview with organizer and author Drew Oya Jay about the problems he sees with the central role that funded non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, have taken on over the last few decades in responding to important social and environmental questions. To read the piece by Jay that inspired this conversation, search for NGOization Depoliticizing Activism in Canada using your favorite search engine, or find the link to it on the post for this episode of Talking Radical Radio at rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.